This is Content Content, a monthly podcast featuring the people behind the content. I'm Ed Marsh. This is episode number 10, recorded June 12th, 2016. Today's guest is Bernard Ashwanden, the president and owner of Publishing Smarter, a consultancy based in Toronto, Canada. He's also the immediate past president of the Society for Technical Communication, or STC. You can follow Bernard on Twitter at Publish Smarter. Uh, I have a little backstory about my uh, my my interaction with Bernard. Um, when I joined the STC about ten or so years ago, um, I went to my first meeting at the N- uh, New York Metro STC chapter, which is my local chapter, and a bunch of people came up to me and said, "You know, you look just like Bernard." And of course, I have no context. I have no idea who Bernard is. So I'm like, well, that's great. And then, you know, as a course of time went by, we actually met and I'm like, oh, my God, we do look like each other. And um, if you look at the artwork that'll go up on the uh, edmarsh.com for this podcast, you'll see a photo of Bernard and I um, at the STC Philly Metro conference this past year. And it's um, it's a pretty striking uh, similarity there. <laughs> so, <laughs> Bernard, how you doing today? Pretty good. Thanks a lot for having me. Hey, my pleasure. It's uh, it's nice to see you again, and uh, it's you know seeing you on Skype on the other side is a little it's a little creepy, it's a little freaky, uh, staring at myself. But uh, it's good to talk to you again. It's a good thing I didn't put on the same headset. That would have made it awkward. <laughs> you like showing up at a wedding in the same outfit. <laughs> we should plan that. Anyhow. Um, Bernard, why don't you start off and tell us about your career, um, you know, what your role is in technical communication, and tell us a little bit more about your company, Publishing Smarter. Sure. I do a broad range of consulting related to publishing and documentation. Sometimes I tell mm. people I do everything in regards to writing, except writing. I help set up the huh, infrastructure, the behind the scenes, the legacy file conversion, help people understand best practices, identify tools that are going to help them. I can do the writing, but I know that there's people who are better at writing content than I am. That's their skill set, their specialty, and I stay out of the way of that. (laughs) I just try to facilitate everything that's required to let them do their job as smoothly as possible. So that's a a little bit of what I do on the business side. I got into the industry, oh man, it's got to be 20 plus years ago now, Mm. and started off working for a uh, training company doing some of their documentation uh, using uh, frame technology, frame maker. So this was before it was owned by Adobe. And uh, I remember one of the first manuals I had to write was for Microsoft publisher. Uh, It was pretty much created from scratch. I was told by one of the partners of the firm, Hey, I'll be here to guide you through it, to show you how to work with frame maker in order to get you to understand the product. And uh, about, uh, I don't know, four or five hours after that, he got a phone call and said, I have to go to Spain for the next two months. It made it a little bit interesting. So I got thrown into the deep end pretty quickly, but had a chance to work with the tool. I had already taken a bit of training and uh, it was kind of fun. I, I started off doing the writing, putting together this document, realized I did a pretty good job of it. And as I began to train other people to use frame maker and to use other tools, they started coming to me and saying, can you guide us through our documentation? Take a look at what we have, evaluate where we stand and what we need to do differently in order to improve it. And that in turn led to the job that I have now in a consultancy type of a field, 
where I do exactly those things. I look mm. at what people have, I find where the obstacles are, and then I try to identify ways around it. So did you consciously decide to stop writing or did it kind of just evolve that way? I think I got into the writing because I had to at the time. There was, huh, a, there was this training course that was coming up. No documentation existed. Uh, I was a freelancer doing work for the company. They gave me an opportunity to go in and create content with the specific goal of having me teach it. So the two pieces went together. If I was to create it, I would be the one who knew it the best and I'd be able to teach it. And I think to this hmm. day, I probably could still go back to an incredibly early version of Microsoft Publisher and within a couple <laughs> of hours be up to speed and creating content like nobody's, uh, like nobody's business. It was, uh, I guess it was an interesting challenge to be thrown into, to be told, create something that you're going to be using, but that also has to be clear to mm. your audience so that they can refer to it and understand and work with the product successfully when you're done. So the writing was there, but it was never the piece that I, I really loved doing. I, I really like solving problems, whatever they mm. might be, uh, gotcha. not just in the documentation or the computer side of things. I often have conversations with people, friends, family, total strangers, and I'll, I'll just <laughs> say, look, wh what do you do? What are the problems that you have along the way? All right, here's mm. ideas, conversations that we can have around these pieces. Which ones are going to help you the most? I don't know. But use what you can, discard the rest. And I think that's a bullet point I put in most of my slides. Use what you can, discard the rest. Because until I know exactly what they need, I can't, uh, I can't hand them a, a manual that says, here's everything that you're going to require without us having first gone in and done exploration. Hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, especially in my experience, I found that uh, people just want to add more and more and more content and just throw it up there wherever there is. But they never get that opportunity to take it away and, and do that cleanup. And do you find people give you a lot of pushback or say, oh, everything's in good shape. We don't want, you know, we don't need to, to clear out any clutter. It's pretty broad. In most cases, I would say when a client comes to me, they already are in a situation where they know that there's an issue. They may not know exactly what it is, but they know it's taking too long to get material okay. to market, or they know that their clients aren't reading the content that is being created. So they want to identify where are the obstacles, where are the pieces that we have a false impression of our client, uh, where are we doing things incorrectly, what can we do in order to simplify and to streamline. So they know that a problem exists, but they don't necessarily know what it is yet. And it's a little bit like oh, going in uh, to, to a doctor and saying, hey, I know that my golf game is not what it was, but I have no idea mm -hmm. why. And <clears throat> the doctor may do a the doctor may do an evaluation and come back afterwards and say, you know what, this isn't something that I can actually help you with. It's a mental issue that you need to deal with, or it's a physical mm -hmm. issue that therapy is going to help you with. Or the doctor may say, you know what, just go out there and relax. It has absolutely nothing to do with the physical <laughs> or the mental or the emotional oh, side. You're just getting too stressed. So you're thinking that people are just too attached to their content? Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> Yeah, definitely. I think people find themselves in a situation where they believe that it's their content. And mm -hmm. um, in many cases, I, I, it's a horrible truth to tell people sometimes. It's not mm -hmm. your content unless you own the company. You, know, you have your business mm -hmm. for podcast. I have my business for training and I create documentation. So to a large degree, 
you and I could successfully argue that this is our content and that we have mm. control over it and what happens with it. But in most cases, the content inside a business is a business asset, the same way that the source code is a business asset, the same way that the physical building that is owned by an organization is an asset. Well, the same can be said about all of the documentation that's created by the writers. It's an asset of the business. If it doesn't have business value, they can change it. They can get rid of it. They can do whatever it is that they decide that they need to do in order to move ahead. And if you find yourself too personally attached to the content, I think that becomes mm. the issue. I'd much rather have the personal attachment to making sure that my customers are happy, to make sure that the people who are reading my material end up in a situation that they can do the job they were hired to do and that I'm not providing obstacles. That's where I think the value is, not in the content itself, but in the people mm. who intelligently put together the materials based on an understanding of the audience. Interesting. Now, how do you um, or how do people find out what their audience is? Do you do that kind of audience analysis or is that something they should already know? Or, well, I guess, do they know when you come in and then what happens if they don't? It can be pretty broad. Uh, that's, mm. That seems to be the nature of having a co consultancy. If you're going in and you're doing that mm. type of a role, you have people coming in from all types of backgrounds. It's not that it's not that I'm a specialist in one area. If it turns out that they need to do a far more detailed audience analysis, I can give them the basics to get started. But we were at a, uh, we were at a client and they had an internal person coming in to do audience analysis training, going in and building personas. Mm -hmm. I had touched on it during my presentation on minimalism, that it's important to know who you're creating content for and then create the appropriate content. But they brought in their own resources, which I think is ideal. I, I like the um, the big picture idea. I like going in and exploring, but there's times where I realize that anyone that I'm working with, whether it's a client or whether it's one of my team, doesn't have every single piece of information. Clients need to turn around and ask internally or externally, who are we creating for? What are we creating? Why are we creating it? They come to the table with that type of information. And if they need help getting a better understanding of who their audience is, we can help on a basic level or we can help guide them to the people that can help in a detailed level. It's not something where I ever want to go in and say, yeah, we know all the answers. We don't. Even uh, okay. even if we go in under the uh, guise of being an expert in something, we're an expert in relation to where someone else is. If I go in and I say, yeah, you know what? I'm an expert in FrameMaker. I can do an incredible amount with it. I know how to make it jump up and do things. Right. Then I turn around and I look at people who are doing the active development of the product. Or I look at other people who are consultants in the field and I realize each of them has their own specific area that they're way better than I am. So I want to be able to draw on as many resources and bring the right answer to the table. And in a lot of cases, when they say something like, who is our audience? How do we find out? I can get them started. But if it turns out that it has to be something far more in-depth, I'd much rather be bringing in an expert that's able to help them find the right answer. And you have that network of people where you can say, oh, okay, I know somebody who can do your audience analysis, or I can, you, I know somebody who can do X, Y, or Z. Yeah, it gets to be pretty broad, the needs that people mm -hmm. have, but I think that's something that's good on the STC side. The Society for Technical oh, Communication yeah. gives me the opportunity to have that broad network. I can go out there and identify okay. people that I've known over the last 5, 10, 20 years while I've been involved mm -hmm. and 
either I've worked with them directly or somebody that I know can act as a reference for this individual. If that's the case, hmm. then I have a qualified person to bring in uh, and join the discussion. Interesting. Interesting. So, for okay, I have a good example for you here. I know uh, we have, you know, my job, I service internal clients. Um, and we know that through statistics, you know, that there's a lot of topics that are really highly hit and a lot of topics that aren't basically hit at all. But I'm you know, wondering, is there value? I mean, if no one's hitting it, is it because the topic isn't good? Is it not? Is it because it's just not useful? Is it, you know, is there some other reason? That's the thing. That's the thing we're struggling with is that and someone even internally brought this up. It's like, you know, just because it's getting hit a lot doesn't mean that the content is great. Um what do you what do you do in that regard or what do you suggest if we have this content that's hit and not hit do we get rid of this stuff and if it um you know do we get rid of the low performing topics and then say okay if someone's looking for this we'll put it back or do you just you know how do you how do you do that pruning i guess yeah i love the idea of top 10 and bottom 10 on any type hmm. of a list a lot of companies just okay. go out and they look at their top 10 i like that you're also looking at your bottom 10 or, or whatever it might be, right. whether it's percentage or bottom five, bottom 50, whatever it works right. out to. The the top is great. It gives you an idea of what people are looking for and right. what they're actively finding. If there's stuff that isn't being touched, it could be that it's out of date material. It could be that people already know how to do these pieces, but it could also be that they're not able to find it. Using the idea of what you and I are doing right now in regards to a podcast, if you go in and you take some of the clips that we've put together, some of the different audio clips, and you decide that you want to embed them on your website, now you go to a website, and what you start looking for is information on audio clips, but somebody's put it together mm -hmm. so that the words are sound files. You're not going to be able to locate audio clip. So sometimes going in and identifying the pieces that don't get found or that don't get hit could very well result in identifying a problem in how you've categorized or classified the information, what the metadata is around it. And that's a totally different conversation to creating mm -hmm. the content. It's a conversation that goes to making that content something that can be found. If you're not able to find the information as a user, it may as well not exist. And that becomes a big piece yeah. of any business is making sure that their content can be found. And how, I mean, one of the frustrating things we have is that we don't really have control over the search engine. And unfortunately in the, um, you know, the, well, we're using Confluence and there's absolutely no search data. So we're really finding it frustrating to find out what they're searching for and making sure that we can put the tape, you know, put the content to their searches. So, um, I don't know. That's just a frustrating thing. It's like, okay, we know people are looking for stuff, but we don't know what they're looking for. And our users tell us that they use search almost exclusively. They would prefer almost a Google like page where they just go in and search than having any other kind of bells and whistles. So it's an interesting conundrum that we're yeah, in. Yeah. The Google analytics is a fantastic tool behind the scenes. Uh, one of the companies that yeah, we do we some work with, uh, WebWorks, they have a tool mm. that lets you take your data, your frame maker, your word content, publish it. And in the finished product that's delivered, they do have an option to connect into Google Analytics so that you're taking okay. the best of both worlds. You have your content being created in whatever tool you want and then being published, but you also have it being delivered in a way 
where all of the search results, all the information is something that's mm -hmm. at your fingertips when you do need it. The, uh, just as an aside, the other thing that I do like in the top 10, um, if you find that people are looking for and finding a set of pages and in the next release, those pages exist and people can find it. And in the next release and in the next release, you've got a totally different problem. If the hmm. issue exists so often that people are searching for it all the time, solve the damn problem in the first place. Get rid of the issue <laughs> that is resulting in people doing the search. Yeah, good point. Fix it in the source. And that becomes another right. place where I think technical communications can add value to a business unit. Going in and identifying, here's how you do things, coming back and saying, these are the most common issues that people run into. Let's use it from our own internal purposes to go in and identify problems that we have, resolve them so that the next time that we release product, those search terms go away because we've fixed the issue that resulted in people looking for this stuff in the first place. Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, we can't yeah. use Google analytics because I work in a regulated environment and they do not want anything going out of the, uh, out of their world. So, uh, we're a little hands hamstrung there, unfortunately. But thankfully, have other data that we can pull from and see. And uh, now we're working with a committee to uh, focus more on our content. So we're getting we're getting some some acknowledgement and some help internally. Finally, after I don't know, I guess I've been there about five years now. Uh, it's it's just, I find it, I guess um, everything's very slow and very you know you want things done yesterday, but things take a long time in a large organization. So. That's one, only only one of the sources of my frustration. There are uh, third-party tools. There's companies like Madcap. There's companies like Adobe mm. that have help servers that you can install locally as well. And so sometimes that mm. becomes a potential solution for a client. Another approach might be a content management system, a CCMS, Component Content mm. Management System, where, again, all of the information is in, uh, installed and hosted locally. There is no external dependency, but you can capture the data of what people are doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, we've gone down one of those routes and it wasn't, it wasn't ideal. So then we had to move to firm supported software. So that's why we're on Confluence. Um, overall, it's worked out. It's just the analytics and the search is a little lacking, but overall it's been, it's been a good experience. We're doing a data to Confluence workflow, which has worked out really, really well for us. Um, and you're, um, I guess, do you, you work it with data, right? You work in structured and unstructured or? Yeah, I do. I got into data years ago. Right. In, uh, <clears throat> I got into data years ago here in Toronto. I went to a conference uh, where I was presenting and I presented on Structured Frame Maker. Hmm. There was somebody who sat through the session and after I was done and he had asked one or two questions about it, when I was done, he said, well, I'm doing a session after this if you want to stay. And I want to say this was about maybe 2002, so 15 years ago. And uh, I asked what the session was about and he gave me an explanation and uh, formally introduced himself. He says, by the way, my name's Michael Priestley. Oh, and nice. Michael is one of the key architects behind the data spec. So I was able to attend one of the first sessions and I sat in on it and I thought, this is really geeky, cool stuff. <laughs> and uh, I think we ended up going for a beer afterwards and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. We headed off well. We have some similar interests. And there was an exploration of ideas. It wasn't anything along the lines of here's how the technology has to be implemented, but rather how does this solve problems? What can we do in order to make it better? And I thought that was a great way to have a conversation. It was around 
resolving issues that businesses mm. have. Yeah, I think uh, it seems like did a, the structured authoring world is moving that way and more businesses are seeing the value of it. Are you seeing that, um, I guess, as your data world expanded in recent years to include uh, more teams than the tech comm teams? A little bit. It still okay. seems to be coming from the tech comm side, mm. but it's often because of an external problem that they're facing, not necessarily yeah. something where internally they need to change it. Translation is a big one. We uh, In the last week, I've had three, it was bizarre, I had three calls about DITA, about going out and doing some consultation, some training, some uh, evaluation of materials, and two of them are directly related to concerns around the cost and the time for translation of source material. Of course. Yeah, thankfully, we don't have to do, uh, we don't have to deal with translation, but um, can you, are you seeing opportunities do you think that there's an opportunity for data face or data focused tech com people to expand into other areas of content in in the organization yeah i think so there's a set of um, clients that we did some work with over the last few years and it's a pension plan organization they were doing very much policy and procedure not the traditional technical communications that you would expect. They weren't putting together content for um, hardware, for software. They weren't putting together something that was incredibly geeky and tech. What Mm. they were basically doing was talking to people, uh, internal and external, about their pension plan, about how to manage it, about how to have conversations Mm. around it, what needs to be done. And their big reason for the push came down to a phrase that we used in a meeting, and one of the managers loved it. He says, that's, that's exactly what we need. And it was just mm. a single source of the truth. They needed to have one place mm. where they consistently knew the information existed and that it was right. And that if it was not right, that they would change it once and it would update everywhere. And therefore it was right. That became a huge driver for the entire project for them, just to have that single source of truth. Hmm. Now I know you have, um, you're an Adobe certified trainer. I think, do you, um, you know, are, do you go into most of your gigs within Adobe first focus or do you kind of, um, you know, the, the right tool for the job kind of thing? Yeah, the audio didn't pick up the smile when you said that. I, <laughs> I, saw, I, I saw it. Big smile. I have to tell people uh, I, I like Adobe. Um, they're a good company for me to be working with. They're a good partner to have over the years. We have had times where there have been disagreements and mm. I'm totally OK with that. They seem to be fine with it at this point in time as well. There are always going to be back and forths with anybody that you work with. But I have mm. friends who work with Madcap, uh, with the organization. There's people that we work with at Oxygen, at X Metal, um, with Microsoft. We work with a broad range of tools, and it is very much the right tool for the job. I'm in the middle right now of building a house. And uh, in a literal sense, in the middle of building a house, Uh, after this call, we have another call with one of our contractors for the log builder. We have somebody who is doing the foundation with concrete. We're going to be doing the roof, which means we need framers, but we also have electrical and we have plumbing. We have windows and doors that are being installed, the deck being put in, septic system. All of these different pieces require different skill sets. And Mm -hmm. I can guarantee you, even though the end goal is to have a finished house with all of the bits and pieces that go with it. There's no way that anyone can come along and say every single tool you need is available at Home Depot or Hmm. even every single tool you need is a hammer. 
because you don't <laughs> use the hammer to lay the concrete. You don't use the hammer in order to do electrical or plumbing generally, but you need the right set of tools. It can be a broad set of tools. And the end goal is to make sure that in our case, a finished house is delivered. That means mm. excavators. That means bulldozers. That means trucks to ship concrete. That means people who are taking spools of electrical and installing it. All of these different tradespeople, all of these different tools come together for one finished goal. Mm. And I don't know enough to be able to say to any one of them, right. this is the specific brand of air compressor that you need in order to power <laughs> your nail gun. I do know enough to let them make an informed decision on what tools they need to use. And that's what we try to set up with our clients. We try to go mm. in and tell them, look, we have strong working partnerships with a lot of different organizations, but I can't tell you which tool is the right one until we actually identify what the issues are. Otherwise, I'm just in here trying to do a sales job and my job is not to sell product. That's up to Adobe, that's up to Madcap, that's up to Oxygen and others. If I turn around and I try to do the job that Just Systems is supposed to do to sell X metal, I'm not doing any service to my client. Mm. I need to inform the client, show them the strengths and weaknesses of the comparative tools, let them have the conversations with the different vendors and make an informed decision on what it is that they actually want to go out and purchase and install and support. Nice. Nice. Very cool. So have you um, talked to any of your contractors about your home, about their, uh, their documentation needs? It's funny. We actually did talk with one of them. <laughs> um, it's an engineering company that did the initial land survey. And part of the conversation is this is what we do. And they are now up at about 300 employees. I got a oh, phone wow. call about a year, maybe two years after they had done the initial land survey. And we had some conversations back and forth. And they actually said, when are you up in this area again? I said, I'll probably be up there into July. Uh, in the next month or so, I'll be up there. And uh, Chris said, well, do you think we can probably arrange a time for you to come in and talk to us? Because we have 300 people that are doing different things mm. uh, or at least doing the same types of goals, but they're doing things in different ways. And we need mm -hmm. to standardize. We don't have standard forms. We don't have standard policy and procedure. We know what the goal is. Everybody gets to that goal in a different way. And it makes it really tough for a lot of things. Estimating is horrible. If everybody's hmm. doing things a different way, right. you might know that this person requires six weeks in order to put together a detailed estimate. That person requires two weeks in order to do the same quality of a, of an estimate. Why? What are the differences? Is it individual knowledge or is it the way that they create the estimate? And that estimate is documentation and that documentation earns revenue. So they have an absolutely solid case for going in and making content better because then they can put together estimates faster. They mm. can get them in more accurately and they can land more business and make more money. That keeps a business unit really, really happy. So are you seeing now that uh, people are finally, it seems like there's a trend that people are, are quote, realizing the value of their content. Are you seeing that uh, in your uh, interaction with clients? I'm seeing it in the interactions that I have with my potential clients. It's not to say that I see it in everything that everyone else does. <clears throat> in the uh, last couple of weeks, I went into the bank and said I need to do a money transfer in order to pay for a part of the uh, homework that we're getting done. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said, okay, there's a $25 fee. I said, that's one of the reasons I came in. I'd like you to waive the fee. And she said, oh, we don't do that. 
Hmm. I said, yes, you do that. I've been in here numerous times and you've waived the fee because of the business relationship that we have. And there should just be standard policy and procedure around things like phrasing. Someone in a bank should not turn around and tell a customer, we don't do that if the customer is insisting on it or asking about it. Instead, the conversation should be something along the lines of, is there a manager that you normally deal with? Or is there another teller that you know that we can bring into the conversation? Because to simply say as a blanket statement, we don't do that isn't fair. And I think that's the problem with documentation. There's a lot of cases where companies look at their documentation and they say, oh, we don't do that. Our team creates technical documentation. We don't deal with sales. Our team creates training materials. We don't deal with technical support. And there should be an overlap. Right. Salespeople love having an informed consumer. They like being able to go out and say, this person already knows about our product, knows about competitors' products, and is coming in with intelligent questions. I don't have to spend an hour bringing this person up to speed so that they can ask the right questions. Instead, I can spend 15 minutes convincing this person that our product is right. And that means that in an hour, I can do four of those 15-minute phone calls and land If I'm landing half of them, I can land two new contracts instead of spending an hour talking to somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about to educate them. (laughs) So definitely a correlation between technical communication and sales. And the same thing in regards to training and customer support. If I know that customer support is consistently addressing a certain question that a client has about a configuration, (laughs) maybe my training department can create a tutorial, use that in the classroom, but also make it available to the support team so that support can say, you know what, I can give you the answer. It'll take about an hour for us to implement, but I have a document that's going to walk you through it step-by-step and it shows you a couple of variables here and there that you'll have to tweak. Let me send you a copy of it, take a look at it and then try to implement it or let me know if you need more uh, assistance in any specific way, shape or form. You send off the document or you send them a link to a website They go in, they watch a video, or they perform step-by-step, and at the end of it, either you don't hear back because it's resolved, or when you do hear back, if the content is done correctly and it doesn't make the client feel like they're being blown off, but if you do hear back, the question might be, I went in and I tried it, everything worked well up up until step 17, where I have to go in and configure a specific DNS setting and I need some more information from you. Now you're having the conversation around the specific issue that exists instead of, again, trying to teach people the entire idea or walking them through a standardized Mm. workflow step by step. So absolutely, I think that there is an area outside of the traditional field of technical communication where what we do adds massive value to a business. We just need to make sure that businesses continue to be educated on that. Now, how do you as a technical communicator or I guess how do we as technical communicators start that conversation? Um, you know, I, we've been doing a pretty decent job at my job of breaking down silos between teams, but where do you, do you come in and start breaking down those silos or they, or do you encourage the individual teams to kind of do that on their own? We try to work with the teams on it in an organization if we're being brought in as a consultant on a job. So we try to set up meetings, um, aerospace. We went into an aerospace client and talked to the technical documentation team, but we also talked with the management team, which then got us support to talk to others. So we talked with, it's a really cool job. There's an entire group inside um, an aerospace client that does seats for airliners. All they do is they destroy seats. 
they take <laughs> them and they burn them and they slam them into stuff at high speed oh, wow. in order to simulate what happens in case of an accident because mm. different paint will burn at different speeds wow. and they need to know whether or not safety yeah. is compromised by something that a, an airline might want. But, you know, we want a pattern that goes from a blue to an orange from the front of the plane to the back. Well, if you're doing that kind of a gradient, every single seat is different, which is one of the reasons when you get on a plane, almost every seat looks the same. Hmm. But you still have a seat, hmm. a middle seat, a left seat, and a right seat, for argument's sakes, and then you have the left and the right side of the plane. Well, as we started talking with the different groups inside the organization, we realized that um, certain pieces of every single seat would be the same. Uh, the seatbelt buckle is going to be consistent, mm. but an armrest on a seat that's on the left or the right is different. It has to be documented different from a testing standpoint. It has to be regulated specifically by the FAA. So they're going to turn around and ask you to show that you've done all of this testing. So we have regulation, we have legal, we have safety, uh, we have the documentation team, we have the engineering team. And as we have the conversations across the teams, and this is where I think the technical communicator adds massive value. As you have the conversation across teams, you start to identify things that might be issues in one place and resolved in another. And then you can put the two groups in touch with each other. And they may not have done that normally because they work within their silos. Um, hmm. Often it's, it's kind of fun. And I would guess that anyone else that you have on for, for the podcast is going to say the same thing if they're a consultant, that when you go in and you deal with a client, uh, you'll talk to one client on a Monday who says, here's what we're doing with great success, but these are the problems we have. And then you say, well, let's talk next Monday after I've had a chance to evaluate this. Hmm. Then you talk to a different client on Thursday and they have the exact opposite. They hmm. say, here's what we're doing that's working great, but this is where we're having a problem. Well, the piece they're having a problem with the client on the Monday had the solution. So I tell them, have you considered this? And they say, you're some sort of a genius to figure that out. <laughs> and then the following Monday rolls around and I talk to my client from a week ago. And of course, the Thursday client had the solution. And I say, have you considered trying this? And they say, you must be some kind of a genius to figure this out. <laughs> and in actuality, all I'm doing is my job. I'm communicating and communication mm -hmm. is two directional. You and I could not have this conversation right now if we both tried to talk at the same time. You listen while I speak and then I stop and I listen while you speak and we right. both learn things from each other. So that's what we try to do across silos and organizations. We go into one meeting with one group of people and we listen and we go into a meeting with a different group of people and we listen. And when we go back and we speak, we're speaking not only from our own experience, but from what we've learned by looking across the silo. So with that, I stop talking and I turn it over to you. And that's how these things work. Right. Nice. That's cool. So um, let's talk about relationships a little bit more. You um, recently stepped down after your term as president of the Society for Technical Communication. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience being at the head of a large national organization and uh, share some of your experiences as the leader. Everything moves slower than you think it will. That's, <laughs> that's one of the big pieces that I think I realized. Um, you go into that type of a situation and perhaps with the, the mindset of it being like what you do at your job. And it's not the same as what you do at your job necessarily. There is a lot of mm. uh, discussion. There's a lot of consensus building. But 
in my job because it's my business, I can make a decision, snap my fingers and it's done. This is what we're going to be doing because I am the owner, the CEO, the president, however we want to phrase it, of my business. Right. Now, I have conversations with the people that I work with. I get their input. But basically, it boils down to this is what Bernard wants done. You can't do that in an organization like STC. It has to be consensus building. There are times where we will have, as members of a board of nine people on a board, very differing opinions on something and argue it passionately. There are people who will watch from the outside and say things like, man, you guys must really hate each other. (laughs) And it's not at all the case. It's just that we have different viewpoints and at times, We do argue those very passionately, which I think is fantastic. It's what we need to be doing. At the end of the day, I have argued on one side of a discussion, thought I knew how I would vote going into it. And then during the course of discovery, as we have conversations, somebody makes an equally heated, passionate debate on the other side of things. And when I listen, I realize that their argument is valid and it changes my opinion on something. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I think STC works really well, and it's one of the things that when politicians do it, it, it drives me crazy to hear people say, <laughs> well, you flip-flopped your view from 20 right. years ago. Right. I think it's great. That shows that somebody has spent 20 years learning something or changing their opinion, and if you can do that, it's a positive. Right. Uh, so, so within STC, we definitely have those points where somebody comes onto the board, And as the discovery is done of the facts and the information that's available, they also end up changing their mind on things, which I think is wonderful. That's that's what I try to do with my clients. That's what we try to do with our customers of content. We try to change their mind on something from this thing isn't working and it frustrates me to, wow, okay, now that I understand how this is done, it's actually not all that tough. This is a great way to be working. Hmm. Nice. So can you tell us... um you know, maybe some of the things that you're proud of over your term. And actually, why don't we step back and say, you know, how did you get to be president of the STC? Where did you where did you start your your volunteer career? I started off in Toronto. Um, I was told in about 97 that there was this organization called STC and that I should go to a meeting. This was something that was organized by the company that I worked for back when I was doing that Microsoft publisher documentation using Frame Technology FrameMaker. So I went to a couple of the STC meetings and uh, I spoke at one or two and I attended a couple of them. And I thought, yeah, this sounds interesting. So I signed up as a member and I did newsletter work and helped a little bit with some of the meetings, just networking, getting to know people. Over time, I did more volunteer work, realized there was a business benefit, realized there was a personal benefit to it. So I continued to work at those things. Um, I ended up running for society president after I had been the STC Toronto president. And it was kind of interesting because I looked at relationships, at building up uh, business relationships and even personal ones. And when I went back and I looked over the STC Toronto records, I sorted by date so that I could find the day that I joined. And I realized that on the exact same date, same year, same month, everything identical, uh, somebody else had joined up that I did not know at the time. But now I'm married to. So oh, wow. Vivian joined the STC 
for totally different reasons on the exact same date that I did, even though we didn't know each other. So it's kind of interesting to see that um, these types of things develop. We met each other a couple of times at a few different events, STC events. Uh, her company had me in as a consultant. We got to know each other. We went out a few times and here we are close to, close to wow, 14 years later or so, wow. building a house together. We've got a house that we've uh, already bought. So there, there was a lot of interesting business development that happened, but there's also personal stuff that's come about because of STC, mm. which I don't know if you can say the same thing about every organization, <laughs> but definitely anyone who has met someone has usually done so through some type of a social network. And I think that's where STC is. It's a social network, uh, not in the electronic sense necessarily, right. but in the personal sense of being able to go out and meet with people. So that led to an interest in serving on the board of directors, getting to know a little bit more about what can I do on a national and international level. And once that uh, was resolved with the first election, I thought after the first run as a director, I would try for the vice president. I had had the opportunity to travel to a massive amount of communities. Uh, I delivered different webinars. I delivered different sessions in person. And I think the reason that the election went the way that it did, I was up against an incredibly qualified candidate in Paul Muller. Um, hmm. The election was a close one. And I think the reason that I got more of the votes was because I had been so active for so long in so many communities. And there was a bit of the name recognition. But I'll tell you, when I when I saw who I was up against in that election, mm -hmm. I thought, this is not going to be an easy one. And <laughs> frankly, um, now that I'm the non-com chair, I really like what they had done during that election because I honestly looked at it and I thought, if I don't get elected, I am still going to know that the society is in a good place with who I am running against. And I don't know if that can be said about every single election, sometimes hypothetically and not to get into American politics, but sometimes you look at what are my options and you think that they're pretty limited because you may not like either of the candidates. And that hasn't been the case with SDC. I've liked mm. the candidates that I see on the slate and it's often a very difficult decision to vote in that type of an environment, which I think is fantastic. That's a great problem to have. Right. Exactly. Interesting. So with two tech commerce in the house, do you um, find you're editing each other's work or editing each other's uh, language or how does that, how does it work having two tech commerce in the house? Yeah, we do spend a bit of time where I'll put together a proposal to a client and I ask Viv to take a look at it and give me some feedback. Uh, she'll put together things. She's a project manager now at IBM okay. and it is a different world in some ways in a very similar world in others. I mentioned early on what I like doing is solving problems. In her case, we'll have a conversation around an issue that exists at work and I'll ask her to walk through it and let me know what mm. some of the things are. And then based on that, I can at least give ideas that might be different. Um, we don't necessarily go in and edit each other's day-to-day uh, -day conversations. <laughs> There's times, but we don't generally do that. But for the written content that we'll deliver to others, we definitely take a look at each other's content if it's important. I'll ask her to uh, review something that I'm sending in if it's a proposal to a client, just to make sure that I haven't missed something, especially if it's touching on something new that I haven't had the experience doing before. Um, she'll ask me to look at things if it's more of a business specific idea rather than a process or process, depending on who's listening. Uh, 
there's different skill sets that everybody brings to the table. And I think, again, that that's something in the tech comm side that STC has mm. been really good for. I, I have the opportunity to turn around and ask not just two or three people, but I can ask hundreds of people for input. And when I start to look at it, it gives me a, a much more broad range of experiences to draw on so that I can try to make the right decision. Cool. Cool. So, um, with, with the uh, uh, advantage of hindsight, I know we've had some up and down years in the STC. seems like we're, we're, we're trending upwards again. Um, can you tell us where the STC is, is doing well and some of the things that um, you've achieved during your time as STC president? Yeah, definitely. There's <clears throat> yeah, definitely. There's two things that, uh, that I really like that we've managed to do. One that is totally behind the scenes and no one will ever notice and one that is very forward facing and everybody is taking notice of um, behind the scenes, as cheesy as it sounds, we've set up email voting. That means that the board can take certain things. We don't, we don't take the more serious issues and do an email vote. But in the past, we would have somebody who brings forward a uh, suggestion that for the conference, a chair be allowed to have this group of people reviewing proposals and it seems like a relatively minor thing you assign a chair to look after the summit you have the chair decide on five or six or however many qualified people that can review proposals who have conference experience who know about trends in the industry and when you see the names and the background of the individuals you want to be able to say yeah okay go ahead and start moving on this in the past we would have to have a board meeting which meant that you have to find a point in time where the majority or hopefully all of the people are available. You have a full conversation around it and then you have the vote. And in most cases it came down to five minutes or so. Hey, everybody mm. on the call. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> all right. Uh, has everybody read the motion? Yeah. Any questions? No, not really. looks good to me. All right, let's vote. And then a week or two weeks after we got the request, we were able to move ahead. Oh, wow. Now we're at a point where we're able to take the motion to approve those people, have an email-based conversation, and then vote. And that can usually be done in 48 hours, in 72 hours. It's mm. something that we can have a relatively quick uh, support for. We wouldn't do this from something on a financial side. It doesn't make sense to go in and make a rash decision around something where a budget is being proposed. And anyone at any point can simply say, you know what? I want to take this to a formal meeting where everybody has a conversation, in which case we move it to the formal meeting. But there were so many little things that we used to tie up our time with mm. by just booking a quick meeting in order to deal with something that came up that when we did get into our core meetings, we would be talking about all of the little things that we've done instead of focusing on the big things. Mm. And so the email vote helped streamline that. And I think it helped bring about some of the other things that we now have, like certification. And that's one of the big things that I think has a, a strong future. I'm a part-time professor at a couple of different colleges. I do a lot of training and education-related work. And certification is a way that we can now take somebody who is new to the field and give them a set of qualifications that are independent of STC, that are independent of any school, that are independent of any individual. There is a third-party organization that takes care of the certification of evaluating the skill set of people and then turning around and saying, yes, you have the knowledge and the understanding to 
to represent yourself as a certified professional technical communicator. You understand in a big picture and in a specific way how to create content, how to organize content, how to manage content, how to distribute the content, and how to take the needs of the audience into consideration. We have two more tiers that are coming. But at present, with the foundation level, we have something that I think people who are newer to the field can take to a potential employer and say, even if you don't know what certification is in regards to the STC, you can do some research and you know that there is an independent third party validating that I know what I'm speaking about. So if all other things are equal, hire me instead because I have independent validation of my skill set. I think that's a great opportunity for new to the tech comp. Are employers looking for that? I mean, it seems like when I, if I, you know, the rare occasion that I'm looking on jobs, I see, you know, senior tech writer, $35 an hour. And I'm seeing that, you know, um, you know, people are kind of just looking for a tech writer at a particular price point. And I guess you're uh, the, ad the advantage of certification is that you kind of are putting yourself above the rest of those people at that same level because you have the certification. But I guess what's the demand for it on the business side? Cause I'm not seeing, you know, a demand for certification or, or, or you know, anything. It's basically, I need a tech writer at who's going to take that, that that's going to take this rate. Right. And I think that that's a fair statement. We're right now still in the early stages of certification as well. It's rolling out. We have a couple dozen people. We're gearing up towards having a couple hundred people. And once we get to a critical mass, I think that's where it's going to become something that employers recognize more formally. Right now, I think it's still an informal piece, but to have almost any type of a certification, um, it's the same as somebody going in for a job and saying, I have taken training. Um, I have a certificate from this small business or that small business that provides Microsoft Office training. I have an introduction to Word. Well, what does that actually mean? If nothing else, it means that you've been exposed to this stuff in some sort of a formal setting. And I think certification can do that with an employer as well. It gives you something when you go to get in the door where you can say, look, there is a certification program. It's not something that everybody has done. It does have a cost associated with it in regards to dollars, but also in regards to time and effort and dedication to getting certified. And to be able to bring that to the table as an employee looking for a job is what I think can be used to differentiate the employer's. There's some that are asking for certification, but there's many that haven't heard of STC. So right. in that type of an environment, what's the value of being a member of STC? Well, the value of it is to be able to go in and if you craft your cover letter and your resume well and you present yourself well, you can go in and say, I don't know all the answers. And when I don't know them, instead of just turning to the interwebs and asking all the general populace on how to do mm. something best, I have a network of other people who are mm. equally qualified in different areas or who have specialties that I don't have that I can turn to and get a validated answer. So I think certification serves a little bit of that purpose. It is a way to go in and present yourself as somebody who has independently been verified as having a given skill set and STC membership is a way to go into a potential employer and say, not only have I been independently validated as somebody who has the skill set, I also have the network of peers that I can turn to, to get an answer if I don't know it. And I know speaking for my business, if I'm going to go out and I look for somebody, I'm looking to see 
What is their peer network like? Are they able to find answers independently? What are their samples like? And what, if any, types of certifications do they have? If somebody comes in and says, I'm certified as a PMP, as a project management professional, right. I, I know next to nothing about it. But my wife's gone through the program, and at the very least, I can say, well, if you're certified as PMP, I know that you've put in the hours, I know you've put in the studying, and I know that if nothing else, you've at least looked at what best practice is, and odds are you're going to continue to develop in your own skill set. And that is one of the other pieces that we have for certification. It's not just, here's your certification, congratulations, walk away. It's, right. here's your certification, and the organization behind it has continuing education units of which SDC, but also other organizations and individuals can contribute. So I think that becomes the other piece of certification is to be able to go in and say, not only am I currently aware of what I'm doing, but I have to continue to stay uh, ahead of the game and continue to add value to the organization. So from a business, I'd absolutely say that there's value in certification, but it's up to the applicant for the job to show why especially with a newer certification like the one STC has. In 10 years, that might not be something that's an issue, but right now, mm. absolutely. But you also have to give credit to the night school courses that you took or to the independent training that you took at a third-party company and explain to the employer why that's beneficial. Right. <clears throat> so do you think that there's value to an experienced technical communicator for certification? I, I see... Um, I'm on Reddit and not uh, Reddit a lot, believe it or not. Yeah. And there's a fairly active uh, technical writing forum or subreddit as it's called. And there's, I just see a ton of people, Hey, I'm a, you know, I'm a programmer or I'm doing this, or, you know, I might be involved in technical writing. How do I get a job in technical writing? You see that all the time that there's lateral people coming from different areas and different fields who are interested in technical communication is certification for them. Or is this primarily for people who are up and coming? I think it could be for them. Um, it's It goes back to what I mentioned earlier about the consulting role that I'm in. I don't go in and I say, this is the right answer without knowing more about the audience. I can tell you that one of the college programs I teach in is a one-year program at Seneca College. They do a four-month classroom, four-month co-op, and then another four-month classroom. So it's a one-year program. In that one-year program, we have people, and I'm generalizing, uh, but not hugely. We have people between early 20s and uh, late 50s or even into their 60s coming into the program. Many of them are second career. Many of them are, as you mentioned, somebody who has a programming background or a construction background or a nursing background and is looking to transition into a different role. <clears throat> they are bringing an existing skill set. And what certification or what the college program or anything else does is it establishes a baseline. I know that if somebody comes in who has 10 years of experience working in the medical industry as a nurse is going to go in and become a technical communicator, if they can come in and show that they can organize and write and think about their audience and put together content the way that I expect from someone in tech comm, and they have 10 years experience as a nurse, that's the type of person that I'm going to put in touch with my pharmaceutical clients or with my medical mm. device clients. If somebody comes in and they have the same 10 years as an auto mechanic and they want to get into tech comm, I will put them in touch with a totally different type of customer. But that certification or that university or college paper that says you have gone through a program, an intensive program, um, helps establish the credibility 
that might not be there if somebody comes along and says, I've been a mechanic for 10 years and I can work with Microsoft Word really, really well. And here's samples of my writing that are excellent. Great. You write well, you understand the software, you understand the industry. Can you work with an audience? Can you organize and plan information? And that's something that certification gives that broad certificate for that says, here are a core set of skills that you have displayed a familiarity with. And it's not to say that it's work experience, but it's definitely to be able to say, I understand the ideas and the principles and I can implement them in the best way possible. So mm -hmm. yes, my answer would be certification does have a more broad value, but it's not necessarily something that's for everyone in much the same way that X-Metal or Oxygen or FrameMaker is not necessarily the right tool for every single client who is going to work with Dita. The more you know about the circumstances, hmm. the easier it is to say, yes, this has a value for you. Do the research, do the exploration into what you learn in order to get certified and decide how it is that that's going to benefit you in getting a job, keeping a job or finding a new job. Now, how is the... Um Let's talk about the education side. How is the um, crop of younger technical communicators? Seems when I go to conferences, I see a lot of people with gray hair, not unlike myself. And I'm wondering, you know, is there, uh, you know, is there interest from younger people in becoming technical communicators? And are they going to be replacing us gray beards soon? I would guess that there's going to be a replacement soon. There has to be as uh, we start to transition out and other people start to transition in. The specifics of the job will change. Uh, 25 mm. years ago, the the 25 years ago, every single person who was applying for a job in technical communication, <laughs> air quotes around it, because at the time it wasn't even something that was recognized. But right. um, and I'm going to generalize and get myself into trouble for it, I'm sure. But every single person who was applying for the job went in and said, I know WordPerfect 5.1. I know Lotus. <laughs> I have worked with DOS. I can go in and I can type 75 words per minute. I don't care how many words per minute somebody can type now. I mean, I don't want somebody who can't type at all. But if they're typing 30 quality words per minute, that's probably a lot better than somebody who's typing 75 words per minute of crap. Um, yeah. The people who are coming in that are younger, I I have a lot of regard for. I work with them. I have two sisters that are 20 years younger than me. So I deal with the crowd that is in their 20s on a regular basis. They are bright people. Um, the, the idea of this entitled millennial is bullshit as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. You will get the entitled um, baby boomer. You will get people who think that they are entitled at any age. It just so happens that we hear a lot through social media about the people who are either brilliant or the troublemakers, but we don't hear about the majority that are good mm. at what they do, but are not out there getting all of the press. We hear about, uh, you know, Justin Bieber going out, getting into a drunken brawl, but we don't hear about the thousands and thousands of people his age who are out there as musicians doing their duty, putting in the work that needs to be done in order to build up their portfolio, in order to build up their network, in order to build up their skills. That's the same thing in technical communication. We don't hear much at all from people in techcom who are in the millennial area because they're too busy doing work. They're too busy looking for work. Mm. They're too busy mm -hmm. out with friends in the evenings, hopefully, and spending time with family on the weekends and spending time during the day doing their jobs. 
which ideally is what we would want from somebody in that type of uh, a field. I think the younger generation, by which I mean anyone under the age of 30, really, who is coming into the field, who is looking at this as a career, are dedicated. Uh, we have several of them that are involved in STC. And seeing them at conferences or meeting them when I travel from one city to the other in order to do either STC-related or client-related work is great. I was at a uh, client in Erie, Pennsylvania a couple weeks ago, and uh, the two youngest people in the class were the ones who got the content, understood it, did the extra homework every single evening, and they took away the materials that we had given them. Uh, which were customized. It was a, a video recording of very key pieces of information and rewrote it into actual policy and procedure over the span of the evening or even over the span of a couple of weeks that I wasn't there. So I show up and there's an extra 25 pages of material that is 100% focused on exactly what the client needs to do. And it turns out that the guy who was in the class did this in his own free time mm. because it helps him understand. He's the millennial in the group. He's trying to get a better understanding of how to do his job. He's not looking at it from, well, I've only got to put in another five or 10 years and I'm done here. He's looking at it as this is my career that I'm building. And the more that I can learn and the better that I can, uh, the better that I can apply what I've learned, the more value I'm going to give to my employer and the higher the likelihood that they're going to retain me and that they're going to promote me, which is the right, the right attitude to take. So I have massive hope for, for the, crowd of people that are coming along behind us to replace us in the field. Cool. Cool. So now as, um, immediate past president, what does your role in the STC become? Do you, you know, kind of bow out gracefully after a time or are you going to continue to stay involved? I hope I can, at least on my board role, bow out gracefully over time. I don't want to be in a situation where I'm the I'm the crotchety old guy in the room. Man, I remember when we used to have to do this and that, and it was all done by <laughs> rote paperwork. We used to have to take characters out of cases. That's why they were called uppercase and lowercase. You would take <laughs> that, that entire side of things. Um, it shouldn't be about me. It shouldn't be about the history of what I did. It should be about where we're moving forward. And I think Adrian and Alyssa as vice president have a lot of interesting challenges ahead of them. I think they are incredibly well equipped to deal with them. My job as immediate past president is to, yes, bring a little bit of the crotchety old man voice into the room. But more specifically, I'm also in the role of the nominating committee chairman. So okay. I need to be out there finding the next leaders of STC and working with the committee that I have in order to validate these individuals and put together a slate that, again, makes it really, really tough for people like you and other members to vote so that you look at it and you go, man, these are tough choices because they're both really well qualified for treasurer or this is tough because out of the six names that are here, only two of them are going to be directors. And I know three of them and they're great. How do I decide who I'm going to vote for? That's the kind of problem that I want to bring to the members is the difficulty in making a decision because all of the options are so good. So my, my role formally is going to be nominating committee chair, uh, formally is immediate past president. So I'm still involved in the executive committee. I'm still involved in the board of directors. And when I'm done that, uh, I'll, I'll basically see what happens in regards to where I can continue to serve. 
if there is an interest in having me do something on a society level, great. I'm happy to do it. I do a lot of webinars. I do a lot of in-person sessions at uh, society meetings, and I would love to continue to do that. I'm, I'm very flexible in regards to what I can do. It just depends on where it is that the skill set is going to be most needed and most valuable. Cool. So you mentioned some of the challenges of STC. What do you see as some of the challenges for the new board and the new president and vice president? Um, membership numbers and mm -hmm. revenue. And the two of them go hand in hand. Of course. Uh, if we had 25,000 members, it would be really easy to take a look at it and say, we have a lot of money. We have a lot of people. We have a lot of things that we can offer. In some ways, I would... So this is this is one of the statements that I'm sure will get me in trouble with someone. I could almost see a society that's 20% smaller, but 50% stronger. It's it's sort of like being able to go out every single day and eat at a fast food joint. You've got a lot of options that's out there. You can have just about anything from just about any fast food joint. But given the opportunity to do this for a month, maybe for two months or six months or a year, you start to look at it and you think, where is the value if everything is offered to everyone and it's at the lowest price point and it's the fastest delivery? Sometimes you want to go out less often, but for something that's a much higher quality type of an event. You want to be able to go out and find a place that does fantastic French cuisine and you know that if you make a reservation for 6.30, you're not getting out of there until 10 o'clock. You know that it costs you more but you leave with a higher sense of satisfaction. So if we as a board and we as a society can grow, not necessarily by increasing the total number, but by stabilizing and increasing the total value of what's being delivered, improving the quality of what's being delivered, then I think you end up in a situation where you have a far greater number of satisfied people that are going to be there year after year instead of having people who kick the tires, try it out for a year or two, and then move on to something else. Yes, it's great for us to have that. We do want to have people coming in, and we know that there's people going out. We know that there is a core that we currently have. But I would love for the current board and for future boards to be able to build up the society to something where people look at it and say, that is a respectable organization that delivers a high quality product. And it may not be for everyone, but for the people who are there and for argument's sakes, they're paying two or three times as much as they are now. And they feel that they're totally getting their value. I'm totally OK with going out to a restaurant and paying 150 bucks for the evening instead of going out to a McDonald's and dropping 10 bucks mm. and only doing it every so often because of the quality that I receive. Right. That has to be where we go. Mm. We have to deliver a quality product to the right people at the right price. Interesting analogy. Cool. So you are uh, building a house and you are a very, sounds like you're a busy guy. What do you do? Um, do you have free time and what do you do while you're not being a tech com guy or building a house. I try to have free time. I uh, play <laughs> in a softball league. Uh, that, oh, nice. That'll be my Sunday afternoon today. Uh, last weekend, we had six games over three days because it was the wow. opening weekend. Yeah, but for a guy who's in my uh, mid-40s now, mm. I was able to – It is it is a beer league. It's not made up of people who are ultra-competitive uh, professional players because the next contract is on the line. 
we we get a couple of people in there. It's a 30 plus league. We'll get a couple of teams with people in their 30s who take it way too seriously. <laughs> but last weekend, we played against three of the top teams from the previous year. We got blown out in one game. We won one of the games. And the other one was probably about a, like a 15 to 8 which in our league is not a total blowout. Uh, so I, I like to do stuff that's physical. That's one of the reasons I like working on the house. I'm going to be up there putting in a deck, uh, putting in the flooring, helping with electrical, helping with plumbing, haul this, lift that, move the other thing, place these 600-pound logs. Those will be pieces that I'm actively involved in because it's a physical thing to do. And... From a techcom standpoint, if I'm not doing techcom, I want to do something that means not sitting at my computer all the time. Um, get up, move around, be a little more active. That that would be the area that I think is the piece that I like to do and I still don't do enough of. You know, given the opportunity, I'd love to just grab a canoe or a kayak, throw it into a river somewhere. Um, preferably working my way downstream so that I don't have to fight the current the entire way. I guess that's a, a work-related thing. You you don't want to be fighting the current all the time at work, and I don't want to do it all the time outside of it. But there's definitely times where you turn and you paddle into the current. And in a work environment, there's definitely times where you turn and you argue and you debate and you fight the system. Um, overall, the, the social aspect having an opportunity to go out with friends, uh, many of which I get to see at conferences probably more often than I do here at home and being able to participate just to, to participate, whatever it is to have the conversations. Uh, I think that's probably why I got into TechCom. I like dealing with different crowds. My wife mocks me at time. We, uh, <laughs> we go to a camp, uh, family camp, and it's a pretty broad group. I usually sit with a group that is between the ages of 18 and 30. And uh, a lot of other people who are my age are sitting with the people who are in their 40s and 50s. So I get teased. My wife says, you know, how come you're hanging out with the kids? So because everyone else is talking about where they've been, about the past, mm. about how things used to be. And this group is talking about what they want to be, where they're going, what they want to do. Hmm. So in my non-techcom side of things, if I can be involved with people who are thinking about where they're going and what they want to do, that's where I want to be. That's what I want to do. Nice. Cool. All right. Final question. Since you're a Canadian, I have to ask. Yes, I can uh, say we'll... A and I can say oot and a boot. No, 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 no. I was talking about the beverage side of things since ah. uh, we all know about my, uh, my, my interest in beer. Uh, what's your favorite beer, Bernard? <laughs> Oh, man. Or what's your go-to beer, I guess? Maybe not favorite, but what's your go-to? I'll usually go with something that, uh, again, another one that I get teased for. I'll try to find something that's a local, uh, smaller brewery, and I usually yep. try to find something that has a bit of a fruit flavor to it. So if oh, there's okay. a raspberry, if there's a peach, if there's a strawberry, anything along those lines. Um, because if if you do other beers really well, I can find a traditional lager. I can find a traditional ale. I can find whatever that I like, but it takes a bunch of trying. Whereas if it has a flavor to it, I can say, you know what? It's not great, but at least it's strawberry. <laughs> well, I could tell you, I just uh, visited a new brewery that opened nearby. If you're ever in uh, my neck of the woods, Elementary is a, is a uh, great beer. Um, they just opened in April, and I finally made it there yesterday. So uh, they had a nice lemon 
Goza, which, yeah. uh, which is, you know, it was a bit salty. It had some key lime in it. It was great. And their Kolsch was actually had some lemon lime flavors in it, too. So uh, if you come out this way, I'll buy a beer or, or, or a few beers. Sounds great. And uh, once the house is done, if you're looking for an excuse to go up north for a week, it's going to be on the north end of Lake Huron. But uh, once it's okay. ready, I'm going to extend the invitation to people. And it'll it'll be a pretty broad one because we are located um, – six or seven hours away from Toronto. We're located oh, okay. about, uh, uh, I guess, 10 hours away from Buffalo if somebody flies into there. And we're still located okay. two hours away from Sault Ste. Marie, which has a Canadian and a U.S. Okay. airport. But if somebody wants okay. to make their way up there, they are uh, welcome to come by and visit. We'll be right on the lake, 180 feet, facing out towards the water. Uh, lots of room for guests and an opportunity to just sit and unwind. It's something that... Uh, it, in a really positive way, I think it's something that my involvement in Techcom and my involvement in STC has really helped me to build because that's where my business comes from. It's from the people that I know in these environments. And I want to be able to, you know, say thank you to everybody who has been instrumental along the way in making that a success, which in turn means that I've been fortunate enough to build up the skill set and build up the people that I know and build up the bank account to the point where I can go out and say, I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to build this place and I'm going to see what happens with it. So everybody should be able to share in success. For sure. For sure. So, um, I've been wanting to go to the Toronto Indy car race for a long time. If I ever make it up that way, I will, uh, I'll take the road trip up to your new house and, and join you on the lake. Perfect. And we're located less than an hour from where the Indy race happens. So you can always yeah. stay up here as well. Nice. Thanks. I might take you up on that. All right, Bernard, why don't we uh, wrap up a little, and uh, why don't you tell us, you know, kind of where we can find you online? Sure. Best options are probably things like an email to Bernard at publishingsmarter.com. My website is publishingsmarter.com. And there's two Twitter handles that I'm pretty active on. One is Ashwanden, the number four STC, and the other is Publish Smarter. And if you're not sure how to spell Ashwanden, yeah, you can either spell it out, A-S-C-H-W-A-N-D-E-N, or you can make your best guess and do a Google search for Bernard Ashwanden. <laughs> Even if you spell it wrong, it'll probably come back with me. Nice. Nice. All right, man. Thanks again for your, uh, for your time. Thanks again for your insight. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun. So thank you again for your time. Yeah, likewise. I appreciate the opportunity and look forward to hearing the finished product. It's been a lot of fun yes. on my end. And I have to say awesome. I spent more time grinning than I thought I would, and I've got a little bit of a sore <laughs> face for it. So thank you. That's one of the things I love about this. It's been a great experience, and to get to know people a little better and uh, and laugh a little bit online has been has been a lot of fun. So you can find me uh, on Twitter at Ed Marsh. You can also find me and this podcast at edmarsh.com. And if you're interested in more episodes of the podcast, you can subscribe, of course, on iTunes. And please um, write up a review. There's a lot of people that go through iTunes to get their podcasts. And if you could give us a good review or any kind of review so we can improve, it's it's much appreciated. Uh, if you're an Android guy like me or gal, um, you can go to edmarsh.com slash podcast and subscribe using your favorite podcasting client. Uh, I like Beyond Pod. And uh, you can also find us on TuneIn Radio if you're there, uh, or finally, on the Google Play Music Podcast Store. So thanks again, Bernard. I uh, hope you all enjoyed this, and um, lots to learn, lots to learn, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks again. Thanks again.